Okay, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Pratt Library. Uh, my name is Reginald Harris, and I'd like to thank you all very much for coming to this afternoon's program with our dear friend, Marita Golden, and two contributors to the new anthology, It's All Love. This is part of the series of events and programs that we put on here at the library. Today, we're talking about love, and interestingly enough, I just got uh, a new issue of a book review journal. And on the back page is this full-page ad with this great picture of the president and uh, the first lady. This is on the evening of the inaugurals, balls in the back in the green room, I guess, or whatever they call it, um, before the uh, balls in January. And um, as you can see, there are two people in love enjoying each other and also having a great time. And it sort of struck me that um, as recently as maybe a year ago, seeing an image like that would have been extremely rare. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Glad you agree, baby. Um, there were and there continue to be a few times when positive news about black family, black love gets out to the larger community. And the idea of having this as a full-page photograph is just sort of astonishing to me. Um, so It's All Love, Black Writers on Soulmates, Family, and Friends is an attempt to counteract all the various images of dysfunction uh, inside the black community. Using fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, the writers in the anthology reigned across a wide spectrum of relationships, right, of husbands, wives, lovers, partners, brothers, sisters, moms and dads, gay and straight, young and old, a mix of well-known authors like Nikki Giovanni and Tini McElroy Anser, are in this book, Rubbing Elbows with Newer Voices, like our contributors this afternoon, Felicia and Duane. And the uh, Cupid-like editor, Marita Golden, has um, brought them all together to talk about the book. Um, another form of love that's really not talked about very often is how much or how often writers uh, need and love each other and need to connect with each other. Um, that image that many people still have in their heads of the lonely writer stuck in the garret scribbling away with the candlelight and all that stuff is a little bit of an anachronism, too. I mean, we still do that, but not as much as you would think. Um, we need and support each other, and we can also be sometimes almost embarrassingly social. Um, so um, we thank Marita for uh, co-founding the Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Foundation in 1990 which uh, presents the nation's only national uh, fiction award for college writers of African-American descent as an annual summer writers workshop, um, the Hurston Wright Writers Week, and, uh, and also the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for published black writers. And Marita Golden is now the president emeritus of the organization. In addition to being well-known as a uh, fiction writer, author of the novels After, A Woman's Place, and Do Remember Me, Long Distance Life, The Edge of Heaven, um, nonfiction uh, books like Don't Play in the Sun, and also co-editor um, co of um, Skin Deep, Black and White Women on Race. Um, she also is a co-editor of Gumbo, another fantastic uh, collaboration of, uh, of African-American writers that she co-edited with E. Lynn Harris. Our other uh, folks here this uh, afternoon are Baltimore's own Felicia Pride, 
author and speaker, uh, author of the book, The Message, 100 Life Lessons from Hip-Hop's Greatest Songs, as well as two chapter books from children, uh, four children based on the Everyone Loves, if Everyone Hates Chris. I'm sorry, and everyone doesn't love Chris. Everyone hates Chris. Every, the Everyone Hates Chris television series. Uh, Chris is, everyone hates Chris for his girlfriends, and everybody hates Chris school politics. Um, and also, if you are not aware of her uh, website uh, backlist, or are not getting her uh, emails uh, about um, that uh, site and other African-American authors, uh, what's wrong with you? You're sleeping. You're sleeping because it's really wonderful. Um, our other contributor here is Reginald Dwayne Betts. It's always wonderful to meet another Reginald here. Um, there was a time when there weren't any. <laughs> uh, me and my father, which makes what you write in here is sort of interesting to me. Um, teaches poetry with the DC Creative Workshop, uh, Creative Writing Workshop. His poetry has appeared or is forthcoming in a number of journals such as Plowshares, Gulf Coast, Crab, Orch Crab Orchard Review, and his memoir, A Question of Freedom, uh, will be published this summer by Penguin. And I can tell you right now, save your money and get it. I will stop talking about Dwayne because I'm just to say we are extremely proud of him. He's a magnificent writer and a wonderful person, and that's it. But anyway, um, as you will soon find out. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce Felicia Duane and our editor, Marita Golden. Thank you for that. Very comprehensive introduction, Reginald. I don't have to say anything else now. I can just start reading. <laughs> uh, but it's really nice to be here. Uh, this is becoming a tradition. Pretty much every time I have a book uh, published, I end up at the Poe Room. And so this is a very nice place to be, and I'm glad to be continuing the tradition. Um, this is, I just wanted to mention something that Reginald didn't say, and that is that uh, this is a special book in that the uh, proceeds from the sale of the book go to benefit the programs and projects of the Hurston Wright Foundation. So that every time you buy a book, um, or two books, or three books, and then you buy a book for Mother's Day and Father's Day, uh, a portion of that will support programs that uh, train high school students in writing, that recognize published writers. And at the end of the program, uh, Clyde McIlvain, who was the executive director of the foundation will give you a little bit more information about what we do. Um, this is an anthology that is so rich. I'm very pleased to, this was my assignment from God to do this. And when I got the idea to uh, devote an anthology to this subject of black love, I called up a lot of my writing friends. And one of the things that's nice about working with a group is that they enlarge my concept of the anthology. I sort of started out thinking about romantic love, 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 married love. But several of them said, well, I'm not involved with anyone right now. Can I write about loving my grandchildren? Um, I'm not involved with anybody right now. Can I write about my journey to learning to love myself deeply? And so the result is an anthology that covers everything from love in the age of AIDS to loving your grandchildren to um, learning to make peace with 
a long estranged father. So that the richness and diversity and variety of the pieces is has been very satisfying for me as the editor to work with and to produce. And I think that for those of you who do buy the book, it's going to be very satisfying for you to read. Uh, there's writers from there's a writer from Uganda. There's a writer from Panama, from, from Panama, as well as African-American writers. What I thought I would do uh, to just give you a sense of the diversity is I wanted to read um, short sections from a couple of the pieces that will show you the range in addition to what you're going to hear from uh, Reginald and Felicia. This is from Loving Johnny Deadline by Lisa Page. This morning I lay next to my husband in bed the way I have so many times before listening to him breathe. It was before dawn and the room was dark. I listened to the ticking of the bedside clock and to the sound of the freight train several blocks over, rattling through the inky blackness. I listened to the man snoring next to me and wrapped my arm around his body. His fingers intertwined mine automatically, even though he was asleep. I forced myself to pull back the covers, knowing I would fall back to sleep myself otherwise. I got up and found his shoes in the bathroom, black and polished on the white tile floor. Found his keys in the sink, his tie slung over the towel rack. I went downstairs to grind the coffee. This is my life with Clarence. We've been together for over 20 years, but as I write this, it feels like a lie. I feel like he was always in my life. feel like I was always in his life, too. There was never a time we led separate lives, had childhoods, other relationships. We've always been together, even as I know that's not true either. We live in this old house outside Washington with its wraparound porch and its high ceilings, like we've always been here. But there's evidence to the contrary. Our son, for instance, is only 17. We've not, long, we've not always been married. The past is full of people who are long dead, Clarence's parents, an ex-wife, and old friends. We led single lives once, loved other people, and made mistakes. Whereas today our lives are made up of ink stains and coffee rings, newsprint, and talk radio playing in the background. But it wasn't always this way. From 100 Days of Bliss by Sansari Tate Montgomery to God at universe.com from Sansare at peace.com. Subject, many thanks. Dear God, you know I've wanted to write about a beautiful love since I was a little girl. I've wanted to write about the wonderful men in my life who weren't like the men in the black classics I read, molesting a child and beating wives like in Alice Walker's The Color Purple. I wanted to write about men I knew, even as a little girl, who were different from the men in Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, men who drained women of all their value. You know I wanted to write about men who didn't torture women like the men in Ntozaki Shange's For Colored Girls Who've Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. God, you know I wanted to tell stories different from the ones my grandmothers and aunts told, that most men ain't worth a damn, but if you can luck up and get yourself a good one, make him marry you and hold on for dear life. I was even determined to put to paper something other than this than the hard-look stories I shared with my girlfriends in our early 20s and 30s. Even though I went through men like pairs of jeans we outgrow or trade up, and even though I lived some of the scenarios in Terry McMillan's Waiting to Exhale, I hoped I could someday present a better narrative. You know that my first marriage was monstrous, and that when I later lived with a man I loved dearly, 
We each had so much maturing to do, we nearly tore each other to pieces. Those times when I set all his clothes, suits included, outside, our apartment and trash bags. Or I left him taking everything I owned, including the chickens out of the freezer and the bag of broccoli, too. The time when he set my furniture in the middle of the street, and the other time he jacked me against a wall to make me drop the knife I tried to cut him with. Madness. But those growing pains are in the past. And God, I thank you for that. If I learn nothing else from it, I learn that men's feelings are as real and strong as mine, and they too must be honored. From my own happy ending. That's my piece. I don't tell the story often. Actually, I usually let it lie secreted away like a precious jewel. I'm content to reward myself with an occasional replay of it. It's a story that is hard to believe, but when people hear it, they know instinctively that it's true. A story more fantastic than any of the fictional narratives I've labored over is the story of how I met my husband, Joe. It's such a befuddling mix, charming, whimsical, chilling, affirmative. The tale of how we met is like some talisman or a reverse hex that lifted Joe and me from the very start into a realm of incandescent, realm incandescent and thrilling. We met at a party, and when I saw him walking through the door, I knew who he was. He was mine. Sounds like a scene from a movie, doesn't it? Well, it is, my own. I'll start with the day we met. I woke that morning knowing that on that day anything was possible. It wasn't a feeling that set me to trembling or even filled me with curiosity. I just recall waking to see a slant of late August sun cursing with a precise gleam through the blinds and feeling that on this day I was going to meet him. I was a 40-year-old divorced single mother whose 12-year-old son lay tightly cocooned in sleep in his room down the hall. And as I turned my back to that slash of sunlight invading my room, I smiled, yawned, and then smiled again. I was due a miracle after a long, dry season without love. On that August morning, I was confident that I would meet the man I would marry at a party I was attending that evening. But woven into the seams of my imaginative knowing were certain things I did not know. He didn't have a name, he didn't have a face, but all that was superfluous. I had claimed him. I would know him when I saw him. He would be my psychic twin, the one. But most important, he would be the right one, because now I was ready for him. He was ready for me. We were ready for each other. Maybe half a dozen other times in my life, I'd felt such absolute certainty, and here it was again. From the language of trees, Silence, the Language of Trees by Abdul Ali. My grandfather had an elegant way of expressing his feelings. He would sit me down and tell me things that happened before I was born, or even before my mother was born. He'd talk about how he'd take my grandmother up to Harlem to the Apollo to see Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, Dinah Washington, and Sarah Vaughan. The watch that he pawned to buy my grandmother summer dresses when he was broke, and all about the extraterrestrial sounds I made when I was a week old. Grandpa always called me son. He colored his hair black so he appeared 30 years younger, never carrying himself like the octogenarian that he was. I used to think he was old school, and he was in the gentlemanly Ossie Davis sort of way. 
I picked up a few of his mannerisms, his pensive nature, never making rash decisions, worrisomeness and frugality. There was something symbiotic about our natures, how I'd call him when I got a bad feeling, how he called me the night before he died to tell me how special I was to him. Little did I realize that he was like a father to me. Of course, I still long for the one like other people had. Most people my age didn't have fathers in their 80s. It didn't matter, though. In the 21 years that I knew him, he measured and passed along his 86 years of stories, lessons, jokes, mostly picked up through his vast travels, like how he lived in Germany during the Second World War, that he visited most African countries before they became independent and changed their names, that both of his parents died before he was 13, forcing the abrupt end to his formal education, self-educating himself through reading several newspapers, circling unfamiliar words and looking them up later, sometimes calling me, putting my knowledge to the test training his ear to foreign languages when he traveled abroad, how his parents were probably slaves, his escaping the Panama Canal, how he wanted better for me. All of this prepared me for fatherhood, learning his language, how to say a lot using a few words, an economy with words whose value lay in action, a fine way of being close to someone you love without saying very much. Thank you. Dwayne, and now I'll turn it over to Dwayne Betts, Reginald Dwayne Betts. Thank you for coming out. Um, it's always good to have a reading and then see some children in the audience. My son and my wife didn't make it today, but my son's 16 months. And I think one of the most important things to do when you have poetry readings, if you can, is to bring the young folks out. So, preface to this, because um, I'm going to read a part that talks about my wife. So, just another caveat about black love. I met my wife on September 19, 2005, and we got married the same day three years later. All right, so she'll come up in one of the parts I'm going to read in the essay. Learning the name Dad. There are only two days in prison, weekdays and weekends. You can tell which day it is by the behavior leading up to dinner. If it's a weekday, right after the afternoon count, you can look out into the pod, dorm or tier, and see a series of faces waiting for an officer to turn a corner with a stack of first-class envelopes. Men brushing their teeth, holding books in their hands, or with the mirror bent just enough to show any figure coming or leaving. Once the guard comes, whether the man drops mail in your hand, door slot, or tosses it under the door, your reaction is the same. When he walks away, you walk away to either savor the letter or move on. Bury your disappointment in activity. Some men have given up the ritual. They spend the moments when other people are waiting for mail consumed in other stuff, staring intently at a magazine or watching Oprah. Mail call reveals secrets. With so many people using, mail call reveals secrets. With so many people using names to run from demons, they brought the prison from the streets. That moment the guard pauses at a cell is the only time they hear the name their mother called them. Black hasn't been Tyrone Smith since he got his first tattoo. And there aren't three people here who know that Ray Ray's real name is Todd Jones. Ray Ray's mother doesn't even call him Todd. But each afternoon he wants to hear Todd Jones show us he's not eligible for parole. It's a signal. 
a bridge to another time before pistols and robbery charges collapsed his dreams into a small cell. Still, when the guard calls out Reginald, I'm not taking back the memories of my kinfolks calling me by my first name. I think about the judge who addressed me as Reginald and realized the start of me owning my given name, if traced, leads back to the moment a police officer claps cuffs around my wrist. I got my name from my father. When it was time to name the screaming newborn, he named me Reginald Dwayne Betts II. I didn't pick it. Your father named you that, is what my mother tells me when I ask her how I became the second. If she thought of another name in the last 26 years, she has never told me. My family called me Dwayne from the very beginning. They lean on nicknames like they do the weight of the Bible. So many of us were named after fathers or named by fathers that the family reanointed us with something that didn't cause tension. Sometimes we handed out nicknames, other times made middle names into nicknames. Always we set aside birth names until they could be said aloud without invoking someone else. Kareem becomes red, and Leon is Delante, until he's old enough to know what it means to have your daddy's name and not have him in your house. One day in the future, I'll introduce my cousin as Delante, and he will respond to the young woman he's meeting with, Hi, my name is Leon. This naming is only a little less vicious than the playground games to end in Damien's angular skull making him peanut forever. I became Dwayne so thoroughly that until the second grade I could not spell Reginald. When my second grade teacher asked if Reginald Best was present, I looked around too, wondering who the boy was that wasn't there. And when she called me out on my inattentiveness, I let her know I was Dwayne. No one ever told me that the reason I wasn't Reginald or Reggie, or Junior, was because of my father's absence. The truth of this was never an issue, because the missing name said it all. I never knew my father. There was another time when I walked into a kitchen, and the conversation hushed with the echo of father, or Reggie, in the air. My mother never threw dirt on his name. She left me to make of the man what I could from absence and from his silence. I knew him by the silence his name caused and from what I learned from that silence. I had decided exactly I had decided exactly who he was and resolved to be the opposite. In eight years, I never awaited the letter I never awaited a letter from a man. Never wondered if an uncle, brother, or running buddy would show. Receiving mail was a ritual the way I let it sit on my bunk for a moment before opening it being careful not to tear the envelope too much. This was a ritual about women, about getting love from the place it most often came. All the men around me knew it too, got caught up in it. We were like dogs that spent their days waiting for the mail carrier. In isolation, I'd drape a sheet over the cell door and read the letters I read as if, as if it were a date. Men would hold off on reading that mail until they made themselves something to eat. Once I understood the ritual, I knew it was a way to mark time and measure love. Less accurate than the sundial, it was what we had. We used it to usher meaning into our lives, to form a backdrop to who was getting out. Weekends are different. The weight isn't for the letter, but the body is the letter. There is less waiting on a weekend. The pattern is so is slow to form, it's so slow to form that after a while it seems less a prison-wide dance and more with the few who prepare for the social do. 
On Saturdays, I would wake up and make sure I was the first to shower. I wanted to have everything out the way. If I went to breakfast, I'd make sure my meal was light, show a little generosity and give my eggs away to a friend. People who knew they weren't getting visits found some activity to fill their day up with. Summertime left the basketball courts packed with sweating men, left the track swarming with thinkers and those nodding from the effects of the drug IV of, of, the, of the drug of choice. The weight pit would be flooded with bodies, headphones on the ears of some to aid in the oneness of the moment that balancing 400 pounds of steel on your shoulders gave you. If I saw a man on the weight pile, I knew he wasn't waiting for a visit. He couldn't pray to hear his name called over the shouting, the banging of the dumbbells and barbells. The wait is long on Saturday and Sunday. No 15-minute window after count when you can expect your meal. The bodies that the weekend brings travel long distances. Then are stuck in lines until your name is called. So the waiting starts early. The first year, Southampton found me up and ready by 10, mapping out my aunt's trip because I knew exactly where she had to go. It took around 15 minutes for her to get to my mother's house and another, and another 30 for them to finish talking. Add two hours to get to the prison and 20 minutes to get processed, and I figured that if she left her house by 7, I could expect them around 10. The problem was she left exactly when she wanted to, and that could be 7 or 12. Southampton had long tears full of cells, and you could wait for visits in relative privacy. Augusta was different. It was a prison of pods, rectangular units with 40 cells each. Aunt Trisha once got to Augusta with 10 minutes left in visitation. I long given up that she'd arrived with my mother that day and was in a pod doing push-ups. She was so late that I couldn't take a shower or throw on pants, or throw on the only or throw on the pants that I only wore to the visiting room. So I went with what I had on, smelling funky and dripping with sweat. That's the day I was cured of the weekend weight. My mother and aunt were sitting across from me, neither noticing that I smelled like seven days in the heat with no toilet. They just eased on into the conversation asking how I was doing. The stains on my shirt no more noticed than a fine crease and I usually greeted them. It cost $2 worth of food to get a man to sweat over an iron and press your shirt, your state blues until the lines jumped from the fabric. I learned the visits weren't about visits and the mail wasn't about mail. The visits and mail were about the quiet time when people called you by names you recognized in the visiting room or in a letter. Trigger became junior with the care of a magician hiding a nickel under your palm. You never know how it got there, but will leave with the sense that it had been there all along. Although I didn't realize it, after I came home, I was still searching for the nickel under my palm. I hadn't written my father in years, hadn't spoken to him in over a decade. One day he called the, he called the law office where my fiancé worked. I imagine he said, hello, this is Reginald Betts. My woman would have responded, who? I'm sure silence followed as he repeated slowly like I do. This time, no, he would have said it all. Reginald Dwayne Betts. He wouldn't have said that first, like the legal system. People don't refer to suffixes. They talk. And then he and I talked. And if it hadn't happened to me, I would have said it was straight out of a movie. My meeting him in her office and him looking at me with my eyes. Thank you. Next, we're going to hear from Felicia Price. Hello. How's everyone? Good. Um, just want to thank everyone for coming out and thank Enoch Pratt for having us today. The short story that I'm going to read from is called Geraldine's Song, 
And it is about the love of a loved one and how that love can sustain even when that loved one is gone and how it can continue to inspire and motivate and strengthen us. I haven't smoked in almost three days, but I swear I can see the color of hope in Mel's eyes. It's a brown shade, not bright orange or sky blue like I thought. Brown, like the thin layer of a sunrise, like the palms of Grand Lovey's hands. I wonder if Pop saw that same sensation when he looked into my eyes 22 years ago. He might have because he told me this would be the most powerful experience in my life. Powerful, a defining moment. I get what he meant. Ageless players around the way who double as local historians also told me that, always tell me that Pop spit me out that I got his heavy eyes and his defined mouth and that my ears sag just the same. Junior remains my name as I walk the neighborhood. Because childbirth murdered Geraldine, my mother, and the only woman who ever understood Pops, grief was supposed to make him turn to one of the chemical pick-me-ups readily available in the gardens, my Baltimore neighborhood where nothing green grew except cash. Cycles dictate that Pops was supposed to bail on me and leave the chore of raising a man-child to Grand Lovey. His father did it. Everyone knew... through Grand Lovey's church testimonies that the Lord kept her when her husband did not. Pops recalled bumping into his father once by accident on the corner. The eyes spoke to one another. Grandpops continued on his Rolling Stone ways. But Pops was a complex man with a simple view on everything. Don't mess with life and it won't mess with you. That's what he always told me. He read the Bible every day but maintained a healthy contempt for church. Despite the fact that Grand Lovey is a preacher and used to house a small church in her basement, he never set foot into a place of worship as an adult. He used to joke around, let out one of his $10 laughs, and tell me that when he was a youngin' with a runny nose, he hated putting on the same gray suit, a hand-me-down from one of the older boys in the neighborhood, because the pants itched his crotch. Grand Lovely would slap his hands and scold him that he best stop touching himself in church before the Lord taketh away. Love isn't just a feeling, Junior, it's an act. His words echo in my head as I peek in on Tanisha while I hold our son in my arms. We said I do in front of Grand Lovey ten, di- ten days after the stick turned blue. The act of loving Tanisha was like living to me, necessary, natural. We are a family. I find myself checking on her often, making sure she's still there. The blackness of Grand Lovey's house shields me from seeing the tightness of Tanisha's lips as she sleeps. I can't make out the twist of her brows or the curve of her femininity, but she remains a snapshot in my mind. Vision isn't important. I leave her to dream about the son she was told she could never have. It's only a few hours before the sun announces a new day. Grand Lovey's house is deathly quiet. It's hiding from the neighborhood, the low murmur of a helicopter in the distance, the pop-pop of gunplay, the scream of desperation. I spent the last two sunrises in my, own room, my old room that Tanisha and I converted into a makeshift nursery. We moved my twin bed into the basement to make space for a Salvation Army crib. I kept my basketball posters hanging just in case Mel sees a future. I sit with my son in my arms in a rocking chair that doesn't rock. I'm a father. My son is awake. I call him Mel for short, let him grow into his name. He's a clean slate, no expectations, no failures, no faults, as close to perfect as he'll ever be. I don't see myself in him, and I'm, and I'm glad. I let him grow into his name. I've been awake longer than he's been alive. He stares back at me, softly, intently, with trust. Cycles are funny. I was 17 years old when I realized that Pops loved so much that he couldn't continue living. The guys with the white jackets said six months was generous. Cancer is like the military. It'll recruit anyone. No sex, no Grand Lovey's fried chicken, no going to Odell's for a drink, no more long days as a correctional officer, all mandates from the guys with the white jackets. It was simple, really. If Pop wanted to live longer, he would have to give stuff up. But Pops was a complex man. He sabotaged his chances, overlived. In his mind, he was already dead. 
but he existed for a little while, confined to a bed that wasn't living. Grand Lovey gave up her room on the third floor because it got better ventilation. Pops was always hot and sweaty. A nurse would come by and clean him, make him presentable, but he still didn't want me to see him, weighing less than me, patches of thin silver hair residing loosely on his head, flakes of skin shedding on his sheets. I respected that, but only when he was awake. When he was asleep, I'd sneak in like a child afraid of the dark and stare at him, softly, intently, with trust. Then I'd leave unnoticed and pretend that I hadn't seen him dying. The nurse told me that he was sorry to miss my concerts. Her words were always, it pained him that he couldn't attend your fair today. So I give him private performances. Outside of Grand Lovey's door, I play his favorite, Bach's concerto in A minor. My violin was the gateway to his shimmers of happiness. I played to see pride illuminate his face. But I couldn't see him. He was being selfish. It was lonely behind the wood barrier. Pops bought me a violin when I was 12. Told me I needed to own my dream. I named her Geraldine after the mother who I can only dream about. At times during my private concerts, I was no longer standing on the pale hardwood floor in front of Grand Lovey's door. I was on stage, evening affair, solo. Pops is there, front row. He used to tell me that my playing reminded him of the voices of angels. I'd ask him how he knew that sound. He simply replied, because they visit me. I believe him. I believed him. The funeral was the last time, the last time that I courted Geraldine. Sometimes I remember the day as a blur of flowers, white gloves, and loud organ playing. Other times I just recall my performance, sloppy. Cycles are funny. Most times I just remember the day as an abstract vision, a dream. I want to look into my father's eyes but can't. I want to see the clairvoyance that prevented me from taking a knife to school to shank a kid who disrespected me. Pops knew that stupidity and had a remedy for it, clothed me in understanding. I want to see love manifested. I want to see what my mother saw. I look at my son. Mel is asleep. I lay him in his crib. Pops made, I'm scared. Pops made it look easy. I need to reconnect with him. I grab Geraldine from the black back of my closet. She's hidden beneath rags and dirty magazines. I unleash her from her cloth case. I hold her like I just held Mel. She looks tired. A string is popped. I replace it in just her voice. Alternate between the tuning pegs and the fine tuners, plucking the strings two, three, and four times for accuracy. The exactness how each of the four should sound is as familiar as Grand Lovey's humming. Thank you. I thank you again for coming out.